Welcome to the Book Smarts Business Podcast. Conversations with business expert authors to learn about the author, their expertise, and to help you find your next read. And now, here's your host, best-selling author and CEO of Influence Network Media, Jody Brandsetter. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming on the Book Smarts Business Podcast. I'm excited to talk about your book, The End of Jobs. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about you and, and what you do. Well, Jody, thank you so much for having me. What do I do? That's a very complex question these days for me. Uh, well, in the past, I have started a few technology companies. The most recent was a company called Work Market, which helps companies manage their freelance population. Uh, we sold the company to ADP, which gave me the space to finish this book, uh, The End of Jobs. And so right now I am uh, book touring and I advise a lot of companies, invest in a lot of startups in the HR world. And I am in the midst of thinking about my next startup. We talked briefly about all of the different types of writing that you do. I was, we talked about that you have a child's book, you have a, a script that you're doing. So tell me what, what is it about writing and being an author and, and doing this creative side that excites you? I will tell you that being able to context shift for me, like if I am so focused on a problem with work market, our platform, some sort of product we want to build, it is super helpful for me to dive into that problem, really get in the middle of it, and then context shift away for a couple hours. Work on a screenplay about this fantastic story and world I've created. Work on a book, work on something entirely different, and then get refueled to dive back into the weeds. And for me, I find that that works incredibly well, that all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? Maybe sometimes in the midst of writing, I'm like, you know what? Oh my gosh, I got it. I figured it out. I figured out the problem. And I will go back and I will solve the work-related problem because I took the time to context shift away. It's amazing the ideas that come to you when you're doing something completely different that really are the ones that drive that change or, or help you, you know, solve that problem. 100% agreed, but you have to be in the space to be receptive and let your brain work. So entrepreneurs have this general notion that we need to go 18 hours a day, seven days a week, and you have to go, go, go and push through the pain. And that is all true, but you also need to get the amount of rest that you need and exercise that you need. So your brain is firing on all cylinders because as the founder of the companies, usually you're the only one that's going to be able to have that epiphany. Not because you're the smartest. In no way, shape, or form have I ever been the smartest of any company that I founded, but you care more, you're thinking about it more. And most importantly, you're the only one with an understanding of what everybody at the company is doing, and you are helping to put all the pieces together. So you're the one that is, has a higher probability of saying, oh my gosh, I figured it out. And so you need to make sure that you're in the space to have that epiphany. Yes, I can. I can definitely see that being an entrepreneur myself. A lot of times I have to digress or, you know, I have a, this year I did a um, company retreat AKA my company is me. So mm -hmm. I went on a retreat by myself for two days to a winery to sit there and be able to just relax, but then also have that time to brainstorm, be creative, come up with new ideas and that maybe I wouldn't be able to do back home. There are a lot of things we can do at a winery that we might not mm -hmm. be able to do back home. I would agree. I, I enjoy Ex excellent myself. Retreat. <laughs> excellent retreat location. I'm going back next year. It, it's, it's a done deal. I loved it. Now I have started your book through Audible and I will let you know that I found your book through a different podcast. 
So it's kind of really cool that we're talking on this podcast, but tell us a little bit about the book, kind of what is the end of jobs? Like if you could sum it up in a couple sentences, what would it be? The thing that I hope people take away from the book is that the future of work is incredibly complex. And those that offer very simple solutions like, oh my gosh, the robots are coming, all the jobs are going to go, are almost never correct. And so while there are challenges we have with how the world of work is going to evolve, and there will be a lot of jobs automated away, the most likely outcome is no net job losses over the next 20 years as we absorb robots and AI into the workplace. One of the things I liked about the book was that you kind of broke down the other industrial revolutions that we've gone through. I would love for you to talk a little bit about maybe some of the pieces that we we should be learning from those other revolutions with what we should be focusing on in the future. So it is super important, in my view, to study the past if you're going to predict the future, because history does tend to rhyme. We see that statement made over and over again for those of us that kind of predict the future. The previous industrial revolutions, Jody, have basically gone through three stages. The first stage is always that freak out stage. The, oh my gosh, this new technology, the steam engine's coming, it's got all the jobs are going to go and society's going to collapse. Every time we go through that and every time it is wrong. And so where I would actually argue that we're almost out of the freak out stage with this. And these stages are obviously not coterminous or you know, they're not completely sequential, they'll, they'll overlap. The second stage is the disruption stage, where there is tremendous economic and social dislocation, because you do have a lot of people that will lose their jobs. It's not as bad as the doomsayers will have you think, but it's not great. And there is a huge challenge for societies in moving the workers from the industries, the job functions, and in some cases, the geographies where jobs are dying to the places where jobs are growing. That has always been a challenge for society, and this time is no different. So when people ask me what I'm most afraid of, it's the workers being left behind and are we as a society doing everything we can to help them retrain and go to the new jobs that are growing because eventually we get to that third phase. And that third phase is a place where there is more job, people are working fewer hours in order to achieve a higher standard of living. And I am 100% confident we will get to that place, but I don't discount the dislocation phase that you go through over a 10 to 15 year period for us in this current industrial revolution. From your research from the other ones, when you talk about the group of people that may lose their role and they need mm-hmm. to be reskilled, what were some, you know, what were some kind of ways that we have as society ensured those individuals got to those new roles or got the training to be able to continue to move forward themselves? Because I think that is probably the biggest concern right now is that reskilling and and getting people to a point where they can take some of these uh, positions that they may not qualify for today. Well, unfortunately, the short answer is nothing. Terrible answer, but that, that is historically been the answer. The longer answer says we have things that have evolved to help this massive power imbalance between companies and workers. Because that power balance is always out of whack. It's always companies that have more power than workers. And so over time, what has evolved are counterbalancing forces. And for workers, those are the social safety net, those are unions, and those are regulation. And so those things are there to help workers get some of that power back in that relationship and certainly should be there to help workers that are being displaced. Now, whether that social safety net will evolve, whether or not it's still solvent, 
Super important question. The regulatory environment, where does it stand? How much regulation do you want to put on businesses? Because we want to give businesses the free reign to do what they do to create jobs and create a higher standard of living. So what's the right balance there? And then the union movement, how is that going to evolve for a modern workforce, the global workforce? Because the union movement in the United States has certainly seen tremendous decline over the last 70 years. I was just talking to somebody who went from being a HR director who worked with unions to now an entrepreneur. And we talked about the unions and how there hasn't been a huge shift as far as their business plan and their model. What are some things that you would suggest to a union or what, if you had the magic wand to help them, what would it look like? Well, I am certainly not in the business of consulting uh, to unions. I'm not sure they'd want my advice. What I look to, Jody, is the Fight for 15. So the Fight for 15 started as a union movement led by union activists, specifically the SEIU out of Seattle and one of the most brilliant union leaders, a guy named David Rolf. David is actually out there right now trying to reimagine the union movement, I believe. I haven't caught up with him in a bit, but I am very excited to see what he comes up with. But back to the Fight for 15, it morphed. Jody, and it moved to a grassroots activist-led campaign, mostly non-union people, people in all different kinds of industries, standing together in a common cause to say, you know what, $15 is kind of the minimum we need to have a living wage. The current federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. This statement being made by workers at warehouses, at quick serve restaurants, at various other at various retail locations, at a host of other employments all across the country geography by geography, industry by industry, job function by job function, was we all believe that this is correct and we are going to take action. And you know what? They won. They won that fight because we have, I believe it's 17 states that are moving towards a $15 minimum wage on the state level. You have a administration that has endorsed a $15 minimum wage at the federal level, but has enforced a $15 minimum wage for all federal contractors and employees. And so that movement won. And that is Workers United in a Common Cause, which is the sole, you know, that is the foundation of the union movement. But they did it outside of the union and they organized on social media because this was an important fight for workers of all of all walks of life. I'm interested in that minimum wage and, and what that looks like, because it is amazing how we haven't really moved from a minimum wage from, you know, back in the eighties, it hasn't continued to increase when, you know, we see that everything costs more today than what it was, you know, 20 years ago. It is very true. And look, there, I actually don't remember the statistics off the top of my head as to what percent of the workforce works at minimum wage, but it is not massive. And so most workers are not facing this, but is $15 the right minimum wage? Well, look, again, there's a balance. There's a balance between what businesses of different sizes can afford. You can't just throw it on right away because every state that is moving to a $15 minimum wage is taking a number of years to get there. And as a worker, you need to be conscious of, well, as that wage cost starts to rise, the benefit of spending money on automation starts to look a little like a better trade. And so at $15 an hour, all of a sudden, checkout kiosk might be a better solution for a lot of retail uh, environments. So there's there's a balance between all of this. And usually it is one when you increase the minimum wage that does benefit the workers. And usually it does not lead to job loss because that is the common narrative. Oh, if you raise the minimum wage, people are just going to cut workers. That actually, there is no correlation between those two uh, in labor statistics. I've, I've seen the exact same kind of data around that. And I think a lot of people also assume that the $15 an hour are the 
kids who are working at right. like a McDonald's or, you know, wherever, when a lot of times it's single parents who mm-hmm. are at that level, who cannot sustain life for them and their children and their family. Right. And so you have to also look at as a whole, what you're trying to accomplish. And it really is trying to give sustainability to families with making sure they can live and prosper. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, what is necessitated by a higher minimum wage, by more of the economic pie going to workers is less of it going to shareholders. And is that the right trade? I'm not here to take a position. I'm just here to say we need to be conscious of the trade-offs that we are making because you can't have one without the other. Exactly. It's being able to look at both perspectives and being able to then find a solution that can work hopefully on both sides or at least give a little bit to both. Right. And, you know, are we better off as a society with unbridled capitalism? Well, look at all the things it's produced. Maybe. Are we better off having such an unequal society? Because that's what you get with unbridled capitalism. Is that the kind of society we want? Well, maybe not. And so I have my points of view, but I wouldn't argue them here. I would just say we need to be conscious of the data and the trade-offs that one has to make. Yes. Now, I am always curious what, you know, someone who has such an amazing gift of writing, what kind of tips you would provide to a new author? Yeah, I'm talking to you, Jeff. I'm talking to you. <laughs> what, what are some tips that you would give to someone who's like, you know what, I want to become Ooh. an author or I want to write wow. a, write a script. Like, what would you give them? I would give them patience. I would give them money so that you could hire help. I would tell them to Tom Sawyer it where you can, which is what I did with my book. Here's the thing, Jody, writing a book sucks. It just sucks. Like it took me seven years to finish this book. And the only reason I was able to finish it because my publisher kept saying, it's not enough. You need to write more. And at one point the publisher said, you just need to repeat yourself. You need to just write the same thing, just write it over again in like a different way. And I said, no, 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 I not doing that. I do not like to repeat myself. Let me say that again. I do not like to repeat myself. Uh, and so a friend of mine came up with the idea because I had interviewed hundreds of HR leaders, of leaders in the regulatory environment, leaders of the union movement. It's, they said, why don't you get them to contribute to the book? I thought, oh my gosh, that is brilliant. That way I don't have to do anything else. I just have to you know, herd the cats. And so I asked about 50 of them, I believe, to write a piece. 40 said yes. And about 30 of them actually delivered because they're incredibly busy people. I created this Future of Work Prize as a means of incenting them to finish these these articles that they were writing for me on what they think the world of work looks like in 2040. And the publisher and I selected the best 20. And those are the ones that got included into the book. And so I would say, do that if you can. It's amazing when you can collaborate with other people and they can include their insight in your book, because it just provides more of a value to your audience. And then, like you said, it gives you less time to have to write, or if there's an expectation of so many um, words, then they they add to that addition to words versus you doing all of the work. And and if you're getting their insight anyway, why not use their voice? Let them have the voice in it. If you're if you're already asking them to be a part of it. Yes, I agree. And it's uh, it's a built-in group of people to help promote the book. It's a win-win situation, in my opinion. Yeah. But if someone wanted to connect with you, Jeff, what's the best way to do that? You know, what's interesting, Jody, is that my answer to that used to be LinkedIn because it's the professional network I spend the most time on. And that certainly is still an answer. But uh, after buying the domain jeffwall.com in 1997, uh, just about two months ago, I finally put content up on it. 
And so the best place to find all things Jeff Wald related uh, is at jeffwald.com. And there is a contact us page where you can always reach out. That's fantastic. I will make sure to add that into the podcast notes. So Jeff, thank you so much for being a part of the Book Smarts Business Podcast. It's been a pleasure and an honor with speaking to you and, and picking your brain today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Book Smarts Business Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show and share this episode with a friend. In the meantime, join our business author community where you can connect with other business authors and learn about becoming an author at authors.influencenetworkmedia.com. Until next time.